0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today, we start a new series about Alexander von Humboldt. Now, von Humboldt is a fascinating and unique topic. I've had many requests to cover the man's life. Yet, to be honest, while Humboldt's fans love the guy, many people have never heard of him. So, who was Alexander von Humboldt, and what did he do to merit our attention? Well, in addition to being an explorer, Humboldt was a geographer, naturalist, and polymath. A polymath is an individual whose knowledge spans a number of subjects and draws on complex bodies of knowledge to solve specific problems. Between 1799 and 1804, Humboldt traveled extensively in the Americas, exploring and describing them for the first time from a modern Western scientific point of view. And what Humboldt would eventually describe was revolutionary. His travels and explorations would allow him to take a holistic view and understanding of the world in a way no one had ever been able to articulate. His views were so groundbreaking, he would become the most influential scientist of his time. And I don't say that lightly. His work and travels will inspire scientists, poets, philosophers, artists, and scholars, including people such as Charles Darwin and John Muir. All of it will make Humboldt be dubbed the father of ecology and the father of environmentalism. He was one of the most celebrated men of the 19th century, a rock star throughout the world. And I want to add this about Humboldt. On this podcast, we talk about a lot of people who do amazing things. But in reality, most of these individuals attain some moniker of greatness— because they did something special when faced with adversity. They fought against nature or whatever and survived. I mean, Ernest Shackleton never asked to be stranded in the Antarctic ice, have his ship crushed, and then forced to sail in a tiny boat through wicked waters to save his men. He did it because he had to in order to survive. He rose to the occasion, attaining greatness due to overcoming the terrible circumstances he had found himself in. So this great man theory, the idea that a person is so amazing, they'd rise to greatness no matter what social position, no matter what time and place in history, it just doesn't cut it in my book. But Alexander von Humboldt may be the person who defies a lot of that. He is an extraordinary person. He had the vision and the ability to see things like no one had ever done prior to him, and it opened up the world in so many ways. So all of that said, this is The Explorer's Podcast. So how are we going to approach the story about Humboldt? He is, after all, famed as a scientist and thinker. The answer is that we will focus primarily on Humboldt, the traveler and explorer. Because he did do a lot, he went to places no one had ever been before, at least no European. He didn't find any lost cities or carve out new trade routes or establish a new colony, but he will make discoveries of a sort, which we will discuss on our journey. The interesting thing that in Humboldt's travels, the implication of what he will see and experience often don't become important until years, even decades later. And thus, we will probably do a little bit more background than normal on our subject, but that will be so that you, and myself, can understand and appreciate this story. As I said, it will be a unique and fascinating tale, and if you're not quite sure of what to expect, that's okay. I felt that same way when I wrote the script. I will do my best to guide you on this journey. Now, before we dive into this story, I have one note. This series will talk a lot about science. I will do my best to impart the big picture of the story, But know that much of this is not in my wheelhouse, so I may misinterpret or totally mess up when talking about various concepts and theories. So forgive me if I do that, just know that I want you to learn about these things, as I have done so when reading about Humboldt and his life. So that is it for notes. Let's get going with the life of Alexander von Humboldt. Friedrich Wilhelm Heinrich Alexander von Humboldt was born on September 14, 1769 in Berlin in what was then Prussia. He was from a wealthy aristocratic family. His father was Alexander Georg von Humboldt, an army officer and a chamberlain at the Prussian court. As chamberlain, the elder Humboldt helped manage the monarchy's household. He was a trusted friend and confidant of Friedrich Wilhelm, the future Prussian king. Friedrich Wilhelm, or Frederick William, was young Alexander's godfather. The elder Humboldt was known as an easygoing and amiable man who enjoyed the outdoors. Humboldt's mother, Marie Elizabeth, was very different. She was a widow and the daughter of a wealthy manufacturer. She was also described as a demanding, distant, and emotionally cold woman. The family was well-respected and moved in the highest circles of Prussian society. Humboldt had two elder siblings and one half-sibling. The latter was his mother's son from her first marriage. This half-brother was considered a do well and is rarely talked about in the family history. Humboldt's older sister died when she was young, leaving Alexander and his brother, Wilhelm, who was two years older. The brothers would be close growing up. When Humboldt was ten, his father died, leaving the two boys in the care of their mother, Marie Elizabeth. This made for an unhappy childhood, as their father's calming influence was lost under the iron grip of their mother. What she wanted, she got. It would make for a difficult childhood for both the boys. Marie Elizabeth envisioned her two sons as civil servants and gave them the finest tutors and instructors. Knowledge, duty, and hard work would be their mottos. The boys were thus educated with the ideals of the Enlightenment, making them students of science, reason, literature, and philosophy, as well as economics and history. Alexander's brother, Wilhelm, was a serious student who excelled in his studies history, Latin, math, science, and anything he could learn from books. He was especially good with languages, so much so that he would later become a famous linguist. As for Alexander, he struggled compared to his older brother, at least with the books. Alexander had an adventurous spirit. He loved to be outdoors and spent hours wandering through the countryside, collecting and sketching animals, plants, and rocks. He would classify, arrange, label, and exhibit his collections. It was the exact thing a scientist of the Enlightenment would do. Alexander collected so many things, he was nicknamed the Little Apothecary. Alexander was also a skilled artist, so good that his mother, who didn't necessarily approve of all of his outdoor endeavors, would have some of his works displayed on the walls of her bedroom. So, while the outdoors became Alexander's safe place, he was seen as an odd, lonely boy. He was often sick, so often at times that he was viewed as a hypochondriac. Many felt that his illnesses were the result of his mother's constant demands, which were like a noose choking his desires and dreams. The truth is that Alexander von Humboldt was a wickedly smart kid. Others didn't always realize it, but Alexander knew it. Even as a boy, he saw himself as smarter than others. As a result, he developed a sharp, witty tongue. No one wanted to be at the end of Alexander's sarcastic and pointed barbs. Author Andrea Wolfe, in her book, The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World, said, quote, To hide his vulnerability, Alexander built a protective shield of wit and ambition, end quote. And ambition was part of Alexander's mindset. More than anything, he dreamed of traveling and exploring. He devoured the stories of explorers such as James Cook and Louis-Antoine de Bougainville and longed for such adventures. Of this, Humboldt would say, quote, From my earliest youth, I felt an ardent desire to travel into distant regions seldom visited by Europeans. End quote. As a youth, he entertained the idea of joining the army as a way to escape his dull life, something discouraged by his mother. He would abandon such thoughts when he dove into science in his mid-teenage years. So, Humboldt and his brother grew up in Berlin in what would have been a vibrant and engaging intellectual world. As teenagers, they attended lectures and reading groups and went to the salons to discuss the latest political, scientific, and artistic movements. Now, remember Humboldt grew up in Prussia, which was actually a collection of independent German states at this time. It was not as big as modern-day Germany, but it extended further east, but not as far south. It was technically a part of the Holy Roman Empire. Prussia had grown into a military power by this time and had a huge standing army, rivaling Austria, It was an absolute monarchy, and the king encouraged education and learning. Prussia had more libraries and universities than any other kingdom in Europe. Literacy was high, and Germany, along with the rest of Europe, was booming with scientific ideas and possibilities, such as the philosophy of Immanuel Kant and the experiments of Benjamin Franklin. It was the Age of Enlightenment. When Humboldt was 18, he was sent to the University of Frankfurt, where he studied government administration and economics for a short time. Remember, his mother wanted him to be a civil servant. He then joined his older brother, Wilhelm, at the University of Göttingen, one of the finest in all of Germany. But Alexander was restless. He yearned to travel, to have some adventures. His experiences at university only encouraged this, as he met other students and teachers who shared his passions and ideals. At 21, Humboldt took a four-month trip across Europe with George Forster, who had been on Captain James Cook's second voyage around the world. From Forster, Humboldt got first-hand tales about his travels to the South Pacific and around the world. Humboldt was enthralled. The highlight of the trip was a visit to London, where Humboldt was introduced to some of the continent's leading minds. There were botanists, explorers, and thinkers. He met William Bly, of the famed Mutiny on the Bounty incident, and Joseph Banks. Banks had been with Cook on his first voyage and was the first president of the Royal Society. There was, perhaps, no more influential man in the world of the natural sciences than Banks, and the two would become friends. Humboldt was so enthralled by these people and their stories, he briefly considered signing on to a ship as a common seaman, just to experience the world himself. But the specter of his mother was too great, and he returned to school. He was, however, intensely unhappy. His traveling companion, Forster, said of Humboldt that his, quote, brain has been sadly overworked, end quote. Humboldt went to Hamburg to study finance and the economics of trade, hating every minute of it, before getting accepted into the prestigious Mining Academy at Freiburg. This, at least, offered subjects that appealed to Humboldt, namely science and geology. He would complete the three-year program in just eight months. By the way, by this time, Humboldt was immersed in a variety of scientific fields—biology, botany, geology, zoology, anthropology, anatomy, and much more. Some people were concerned that his interests were too broad, that he'd never really become an expert at anything. But these people were seriously underestimating the mind and ambition of Humboldt. He quickly proved to be really good at his job. At 22, he was a mining inspector, an amazing accomplishment. He would travel around the kingdom and evaluate mines, soils, and ores. He loved the physical part of the job. He wasn't afraid to crawl into the deepest mines. It was nature, after all, and he loved it. And another thing, he was quickly demonstrating curiosity and humanity regarding his job and the people involved in it. For Humboldt, this wasn't just about measuring, noting, and classifying all the data. It was much more. He showed a genuine concern for the people involved in mining, even inventing a breathing mask for the miners, plus a lamp that worked in oxygen-poor shafts. He was so appalled by the lack of education for the miners and their families, he started school for them and even wrote the textbooks himself. Humboldt thrived at his job. He increased productivity and safety wherever he went. Promotions followed. His career was going well and he was learning a lot. He was also demonstrating a trait that would mark him for life, and that was a seemingly inexhaustible drive. For all of his life, he would work and work and work, up at dawn to bed in the wee hours of the morning. Then he'd do it again and again. He ignored cold and sickness and kept working. For Humboldt, there was simply too much to do. His mind was exploding with ideas. All of this led him to be plagued by illness and exhaustion. His sister-in-law, Carolyn, said, I honestly think he is scurry and may go mad at any time, End quote. And this obsession with learning wasn't just with his job at the mines, but his interest in botany and biology and chemistry or whatever else struck his fancy. Example, he began a long study on electricity and animals, conducting 4,000 experiments on the subject. He even did tests on himself, which were incredibly painful, yet immensely satisfying. He was a man of boundless energy, both mental and physical and he was insanely curious about the world, about nature, and the universe. Another thing about Humboldt that was so striking was his desire to learn. His entire life, he never stopped learning. He would devour books, attend lectures, exchange letters with other scientists, anything to advance his knowledge. Even at an old age, he'd attend university lectures with students just to hear what the professor had to say. He never thought he was so smart that he couldn't learn more. Anyhow, in 1793, Humboldt would have his research on vegetation and mines, called the Freiburg Flora, published. And the 4,000 experiments on electricity and animals? Well, that would be published in 1797 and mark him as a bold and innovative scientist. But that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. In 1794, Humboldt visited his brother Wilhelm and his wife Carolyn and their two children in Jena, about 150 miles southwest of Berlin. Jena was not a big place, but it was a center of learning. Humboldt would fall in with a group of Enlightenment thinkers, including playwright Friedrich Schiller and writer Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, the latter Germany's greatest poet. Goethe was still a decade away from publishing his epic play, Faust. Humboldt was energized by the eclectic and invigorating conversations, as were his colleagues. Of Humboldt, Goethe would say, quote, in eight days of reading books, one couldn't learn as much as what he gives you in an hour, end quote. And while that is a wonderful quote, there's some very important thoughts in it. One of the great things about Humboldt will be his ability to distill complicated and obtuse ideas and concepts down into something that could be understood by everyone. He would speak and write in a way that brought clarity to the complex. Also, he was demonstrating his ability to weave ideas together through many fields of thought. He couldn't discuss rocks without studying their relationship to the soil and plants. A discussion on flora meant you had to talk about the climate, the earth, animals, humans, geography, and a dozen other factors involved. It was his ability to see the big picture, the ability to understand how all the forces of nature were interlaced and interwoven. Now, these interactions were not just about Humboldt wowing his friends. It was also about these conversations transforming Humboldt's thinking. For Humboldt, he began to see beyond science. Art and beauty and imagination were becoming a part of his thought process. Goethe was, in particular, a huge influence on Humboldt. The great writer was in his 40s, but he had an appetite for learning that equaled Humboldts. He was fascinated by nature and a passionate scientist. He would become a perfect partner in crime with Humboldt. Over the next few years, they would exchange letters and ideas, and when they got together, they would conduct experiments. It was at this time that Humboldt voiced the possibility that men and animals had a common ancestor, and Goethe would do some of his most innovative work during these periods. For Humboldt, he embraced a multidisciplinary approach to his work. It wasn't just collecting and cataloging stuff. It was a melding of art, philosophy, science, knowledge, and imagination. By the way, I want to back up a moment and talk about Carolyn von Humboldt, Alexander's sister-in-law. Carolyn was a unique influence in Humboldt's life. He had become this sort of uber-intellectual scientist guy. Some people saw him as arrogant and off-putting but his sister-in-law always had a soft spot for him, and he for her. She tried to get him to be a part of the family and to make a home for him, but that was not Alexander's lot in life. He seems to have cast himself as forever being doomed to be alone. Carolyn would be the only woman to have a significant influence on him in his lifetime. Humboldt would never marry or have children. He did, however, have numerous intense friendships with men throughout his lifetime, and based upon surviving letters, most scholars believe that he was gay. But gay or not, he never had any long-lasting romantic entanglements with anyone for his entire life. Anyhow, 27-year-old Alexander von Humboldt was making a name for himself in Europe. But you know what? Humboldt was stuck. He had a nice position in Prussia's mining industry, but it was not particularly satisfying or challenging work. And then all of that would change when Humboldt's domineering mother, Marie Elizabeth, would die And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for through-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Marie Elizabeth von Humboldt died in November 1796 due to cancer. Neither of her sons grieved much for their mother, who they disliked and resented. Humboldt would write a friend saying, quote, You know that my heart could not have been much pained by this event, for we were always strangers to each other. End quote. As a result of their mother's death, both Alexander and Wilhelm were mostly free from her influence. For the 27 year old Alexander, that meant that he was done with the mining ministry. He resigned within a few weeks of his mother's death. Wilhelm would wait a few months and then move to Dresden and then Paris. In Paris, he and his wife, Carolyn, would turn their home into a salon, a place for artists, writers, and poets to gather and commiserate. Alexander inherited properties and assets valued at nearly 100,000 thalers, saying, quote, I have so much money that I can get my nose, mouth, and ears gilded. End quote. So, how much is 100,000 thalers? Good question. I looked online and found that the Prussian thaler of the era had approximately 16.7 grams of silver in it that converts into about 0. .59 ounces. I then found that an ounce of silver in 1794 in the United States was valued at $1.29. Simple math makes one taller equal to around 76 cents. Even simpler math makes $100,000 worth around $76,000. No matter if my math is close or not, this inheritance made Alexander von Humboldt a rich man. And so, with money in the bank and his mother's hold on him in the past, Humboldt set out to do what he always wanted to do, travel. He had no interest in houses or clothing or business. He wanted to travel to explore. The only question was, where? Humboldt knew that he could essentially finance his own journeys. He could buy the instruments and provisions he would need. But he also needed to find a ship or ships going on a major voyage of exploration. So, while he searched for such an opportunity, Humboldt prepared for whatever adventure was made available. He bought books and scientific instruments and learned to use the latter. He learned as much as he could about botany, geology, astronomy, and anything else that might help him. He climbed mountains in Switzerland in anticipation of going to such places as the Andes in South America. In the end, Humboldt didn't hire experts to go with him on his expedition. Instead, he became all of those experts. And I want to stress that Humboldt was now seen as a leading naturalist and scientist. He cultivated relationships with other experts, and as his research was published, he gained fame and honors for his innovative work. One scientist even named a newly discovered plant in India after Humboldt. Now, Humboldt had one major problem with his desire to travel the world and explore, and that was the fact that war now hung over Europe. The French Revolution of 1789 had grown into a continent-wide affair, and Napoleon Bonaparte was rising to power. This made any sort of scientific expedition a dicey affair for any nation as the threat of war hovered over Europe. By the way, I want to mention that Humboldt stayed out of politics. He was sympathetic to republican ideals and government, but he never let politics get in the way of learning and knowledge. In April of 1798, Humboldt visited his brother and his family in Paris, a city that he adored. It was here that he met Louis-Antoine de Bougainville, The famous French explorer was a contemporary of British explorer James Cook. He was the first Frenchman to circumnavigate the world and had sailed throughout the South Pacific. Bougainville had hoped to organize another trip around the world, one that would take up to five years. This was exactly what Humboldt dreamed of. He admired and respected the man. It was a perfect fit. But again, there was a problem. The Frenchman was 70 years old and he had deep ties to France's royalist past. This made him suspect to the younger generation of leaders born out of the Revolution. And thus Bougainville was replaced by another explorer, Nicholas Baudin. Baudin extended an offer to Humboldt to join him, and he accepted. But Humboldt didn't have a lot of confidence in Baudin, and when Baudin's expedition was put on hold due to more fighting in Europe, Humboldt began to look for other ways to go adventuring. However, before we mention those, there is an important person I want to introduce to our story, and that is Aime Bonplant, a young French botanist and surgeon four years younger than Humboldt. The two had met in Paris and had quickly hit it off, both longed to see the world and have some adventure. Soon they were inseparable. They would see the world together, they decided. In a lot of ways, Bonplant would be a good counter to Humboldt. He was calm, reassuring, and sensible, a sharp contrast to the mercurial and frenzied Humboldt. So, with his plans in limbo, Humboldt and Bonpland turned to the idea of going to Egypt once Napoleon invaded in May of 1798. Bonaparte had taken nearly 200 scholars and scientists with him. One of the things they found was the Rosetta Stone, which became the key for translating Egyptian hieroglyphics. Anyhow, Humboldt got permission to join the expedition, so he and Bonpland headed to Marseille to rendezvous with a ship bound for Algiers on the North African coast. Humboldt figured that he would visit the Atlas Mountains of Morocco and then travel with pilgrims heading to Mecca for a hajj. He would then join the French contingent once he reached Egypt, and then go on to Syria and Palestine, and maybe even India. But things did not go well. Humboldt's first ship was diverted due to the war, and thus he arranged passage on a Swedish vessel due to arrive in Marseille. But that ship never showed up as planned. So Humboldt waited and waited and waited some more. For two months, nothing happened. Well, it turns out that the ship was waylaid in a storm and never reached Marseille. Knowing that his ride probably wasn't going to arrive, Humboldt looked to hire his own ship, but nothing was available due to the war. Humboldt then turned his attention elsewhere and headed to Madrid, Spain. Spain was an interesting option because Humboldt dreamed of going to the Andes Mountains, some of the highest places in the world. However, the Spanish were famous for refusing to give passports to foreigners traveling in their territories. Spain was, at this time, an ally of France. But Humboldt was a persistent and passionate man, pleading his case to Spanish officials. And we can't forget that Spain, like Prussia, was an absolute monarchy. Humboldt understood how this sort of royal court operated. He knew the rules and the games that had to be played. Plus, he had a mining background, something valued by Spanish officials. And we shouldn't forget that Humboldt could be incredibly charming when he wanted to be. In the end, it would all pay off when, in March of 1799, King Carlos IV issued Humboldt and Bonpland passports to travel throughout Cuba, Mexico, Venezuela, Peru, Chile, Buenos Aires, and the Philippines. The Spanish offered him a ride to the Americas, but otherwise Humboldt was paying for everything. Also, he was required to send back geological and botanical collections to museums in Madrid. Critically, the Spanish passport ordered colonial officials to protect and aid Humboldt on his travels. This will be invaluable. Humboldt claimed that the Spanish crown had never before given a foreigner such freedom to explore their colonial territories. And so, Humboldt and Bonpland made ready for their voyage to the Americas. They had the latest in scientific instruments, including clocks, compasses, sextants, telescopes, microscopes, barometers, a chronometer, and many other items, 42 in total. There was paper, writing utensils, storage materials, scales, and a hundred other items. Humboldt planned to collect plants, seeds, rocks, and animals. He was going to measure the heights of mountains, take astronomical observations, and calculate the latitude and longitude of the places that they went. Humboldt and Bonplant departed from A Coruña, Spain, on June 5, 1799, aboard the light frigate Pizarro. The destination was Havana, Cuba, a stop in the Canary Islands along the way. Before departing, Humboldt sent a letter to Nicolas Baudin, who was still hoping to set out on his circumnavigation of the world. Humboldt said that he hoped to connect with Bodin in Chile or Peru, on the western side of South America. Also, he sent letters to friends and family, knowing he would not see them for several years. It was interesting to see him note the conflicting emotions he had as he prepared to depart. He was actually seeing his lifelong dream of traveling and exploring become a reality. It was scary and exhilarating all at the same time. Now, sailing on the Pizarro had risks due to the war with England. The British had defeated the Spanish fleet at the Battle of Cape St. Vincent a year earlier. Spain was now under blockade, and making a run past the British was a risky affair. As Humboldt prepared to sail, there were rumors an English squadron was in the area. People were saying that the Pizarro would be captured within three days of sailing. The Pizarro would slip into the Atlantic and make way towards the Canary Islands, about 1,100 miles, or 1,700 kilometers, to the southwest. At night, the ship had a no-lights policy to prevent it from being spotted by English ships. Otherwise, Humboldt and Bonpland were already doing scientific stuff from day one, measuring the air and water temperatures and making astronomical observations. Anyhow, the Pizarro would slip past the British blockade and make their way for the Canaries, which they reached on June 16th. Two days later, they again avoided British patrol ships and anchored off the island of Tenerife under the protection of the guns of the island's fortress. Now, I have to stop a moment and talk about Humboldt's writings. In all honesty, it's insane the amount of information that he and Bonpont collected. I can't stress how detailed his own narrative of his travels can be. Just sailing amongst the various islands of the Canaries takes up pages and pages and pages. He talks about the history of the islands, the waters, the currents, the landscape, the people. It's just nuts. On that note, if you have a desire to read Humboldt's own narrative, be prepared. It is overwhelming. For a scientist or naturalist, it's a smorgasbord of absolute goodness, but for someone such as myself, it's overwhelming. It's never boring, just so much stuff that veers out of what I really know. And so, on Tenerife, Humboldt headed ashore. He ignored the many monasteries and monks and churches, and instead took aim for the plants, the fruits, the trees, and the mountains. Tenerife has a volcanic mountain, Teda, that is over 12,000 feet, or 3,700 meters, high, Humboldt and Bonpland and some local guides, set out on June 21st to ascend the mountain. In Humboldt's writings, what follows next is another explosion of information and data, its pages of observations, comparisons, and highlights. And I want to note this concept of comparisons and highlights. Humboldt loves to compare, trying to identify and compare things, in this case a volcanic mountain, to a volcanic mountain in another part of the world. It's this holistic look at stuff trying to understand how things in one place are different or similar with another place. It's not just observation and the collecting of data. And I mentioned the idea of highlights, and that's because right from the start, Humboldt likes to bring forward what is special about a place. Honestly, looking at a vista from any mountain, anywhere, is an extraordinary thing. But Humboldt tries to find the uniqueness of each experience. When climbing the mountain on Tenerife, he, for the first time, notices the elevation of plant distribution, a gradual change from subtropical to temperate flora. This is the kind of thing he will discover everywhere that he goes some piece of information or some insight into nature. Another fascinating thing about Humboldt's visit to Tenerife is how it really starts his exploration of the world beyond Europe. And in time, coming to the island will become a sort of pilgrimage for naturalists and artists who were inspired by Humboldt. They wanted to be opened up to the world just like he had experienced. Humboldt would rejoin Pizarro and the little frigate would depart the Canary Islands on June 25th. The plan was to go to Havana, Cuba. It would take 20 days for the Pizarro to cross the Atlantic, reaching the island of Tobago, not far from the South American coast near present-day Venezuela. Normally, the ship would turn north and sail along the string of islands that lead to Cuba. However, the ship was facing a problem. Typhoid had broken out amongst the crew. At least one man died from the disease and others were sick. The quicker the men got off the ship, the better. And so, the decision was made to head west for the port of Comuna on the northern coast of Venezuela, roughly 280 miles away, or 450 kilometers. On the way to Comuna, the Pizarro would pass by several islands, including Margarita Island, which had once been a hotbed of pearl harvesting. At one point, the Pizarro headed into a dangerous channel but was put on the correct course by some native Guaciria people in canoes they encountered. These were huge dugout canoes made from a single log and carrying 18 people. One of the natives volunteered to come aboard the pizarro and act as a pilot. Humboldt would spend all night talking with the man, grilling him about his home, the surrounding lands, the weather, anything. The pizarro reached Cumana on July 17, 1799, 41 days after departing Spain. Cumana was the capital of New Andalusia, It was one of the first cities founded by Spain in the mainland Americas and is the oldest continually inhabited Hispanic-established city in South America. Reaching Cumana instead of Havana was just fine with Humboldt. He had wanted to come to South America, so this saved him another voyage. And it is here in Cumana that we will leave Humboldt until next time. Our German explorer and scientist had, on Tenerife, tasted the joys of investigating a new world. But it is in South America that Humboldt will really make his mark. Next time, there will be a lot in store for Humboldt and Bon Plante. They will discover new birds, plants, and animals. They will investigate the effects of crop cultivation and the ramifications of clear-cutting trees on the environment. There will also be an expedition to sail down the Orinoco River in search of a waterway connecting to the Amazon. I want to wrap up today by giving a shout-out to the show's many supporters. I appreciate everything that you do. I want to especially give a nod to our Patreon members. This includes Eamon, Eileen, Arthur, Peter, Philip, David, Dan, John, Paul, Mitchell, Craig, Rudy, Andrew, Cameron, Catherine, Christopher, Elizabeth, Collier, Eric, George, Griffin, Paul, Robert, Susan, Thomas, and so many others. Thank you for making this show possible. So, that is it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us next time when we continue the story of Alexander von Humboldt. Thank you again. Take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows. I highly recommend Grey History, which covers the French Revolution. You can follow that up with The Age of Napoleon. Enjoy.